0: Just love going through this series with you. So we are currently teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is probably the most famous sermon in all of Scripture, and I believe the most famous teaching of Jesus. And some consider this the epitome of the teachings of Jesus, and therefore the essence of Christianity. So what is Jesus all about? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Or I should turn to this passage the Sermon on the Mount to learn Jesus's way of being. Now this sermon is Jesus's answer to the universal philosophical and religious quest in question, how can a person truly be happy or what is the truly good life? And I think if you were to summarize the teaching of this sermon in two themes, it would be flourishing and human Wholeness. These are the things that Jesus wants to hold up to us, and these are the way of life that he is inviting us into. Now, as we've said many times, this sermon then is not about rules to get into the kingdom of God. Jesus, as the king of the kingdom of God, is here inviting anyone into his kingly Rule that is made available through the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ruling reign of Jesus over the kingdom of God. The sermon is also not unattainable standards just to get us to see that we couldn't possibly live up to its righteousness. So, so thank God for grace. That's just nonsensical. Why teach the sermon at all? The sermon is also not rules of how we have to behave or must behave if we are to stay in the kingdom of God, it's so much deeper than that. This sermon is actually meant to get into our bones. It's supposed to be about our very way of being. And this sermon is also not just a vision of what life will be like one day when God physically reigns on earth. The possibilities of this sermon are for the here and now. And I believe that what Jesus is saying here is this. Now that I am here, God's Kingdom is coming into being. And once we realize that, we'll see that this sermon is about the habits of heart which anticipate God's kingdom here and now. Whether qualities of purity of heart, peacemaking, or mercy, these are not things that we do to earn a reward or pay God back, nor are they merely rules of the conduct now that we've become Christians, but they themselves are the signs of life the signs that something has happened in us, that God's kingdom has taken up residence in our life and in this community. Joachim Jeremias, he says it this way. He says, what Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of disciples, and it's not intended to be. Rather, what is taught here are symptoms, signs, examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil, you yourselves should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. See, what he's saying is that the possibilities of this sermon, the vision and life that it puts forward is available to us here and now under the rule, reign, and tutelage of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the true King, he teaches his disciples the way of the life in the kingdom of God that is to be lived, practiced, and cultivated now. The sermon is Jesus' own way of life that we're invited into as witnesses to the coming kingdom of God. And this sermon has been used for centuries. To shape God's people into the way of Jesus and into the way of God's kingdom. And that is what we are believing for ourselves. As we enroll in Jesus's school of discipleship, as we learn this sermon, that we will learn his way of being and enter into human wholeness, a deeper level of the kingdom of God permeating our lives and being lived through our lives. Now, as we've been saying since the beginning of this series, Jesus' teaching in this sermon paints a vision of the good life of human wholeness that is contradictory to good human sense and the way human beings naturally operate, whether like that's first century uh, Jewish culture or that's 21st century American culture. Now, you can imagine... The crowd that first heard this teaching by Jesus, just looking in wonder at Jesus. You know, I have a um, two-year-old little puppy, and he just has this way, any of you guys, dog people, you'll know, like the way your dog just kind of cocks its head, like in this like, huh, what's happening here, right? This is kind of one of those moments in the sermon where Jesus says something that is just so like, huh, what are you talking about, right? Who is this? And where is all of this going? Maybe some unsurity with the uh, crowds about where Jesus is heading. Is this something new? Is it undermining and seeking to replace our history and way of life as the Jewish people? So Jesus seems to predict the objections to his vision with what he says next. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fill them up. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, this is an incredible statement made here by Jesus on the heels of his vision of true flourishing to those Uh, to whom the kingdom of God belongs. A statement here, it's the crescendo of the Beatitudes, and yet it will frame everything that's coming after it. But this vision of God's people living out his way of being, his character in the world, Jesus says, is the light that lights the whole world. It's the salt that salts the earth and preserves it. And Jesus is saying, by the way, what I'm saying, what I'm expounding upon, this isn't new. I'm not setting aside, dismissing or disregarding Israel's history and identity. It's all in line with the law and the prophets. It's just been waiting to be fulfilled. Now, I think in order for us to really feel the weight of what Jesus is claiming here, we need to revisit and maybe understand for the first time what the law and prophets are all about. So what is the law and the prophets? Well, the law and the prophets is one way we can refer to the Hebrew scriptures or what we Christians call the Old Testament. In Jesus's time, Jewish people saw only two categories of their scripture. There was law or Torah, which is the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then there is the prophets. And that would include everything from Joshua, Judges, Ruth, uh, Samuel, Chronicles. These historical books the prophets, and also the wisdom literature of Scripture. That would be Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, and the book of Job. Now, the law itself laid out God's standard of right, of righteousness, God's standard of justice, of goodness for his people Israel, that would result in shalom. There's this one passage, I think it's in Leviticus, I should have written it down, But God says, when you live out my rule, my kingdom culture, the other nations will look at you and they will say, what other nation on earth is like Israel to have such righteous laws and rules? What other people lives in such a beautiful way and has their God near to them? See, the law was a vision and implementation of God's kingdom culture that was to be practiced by his people. And it was supposed to be a light to the nations to draw them to know the true God. It was supposed to be this salt, this preservation in the earth to keep back the rotting putridness of selfishness and evil that was rampant in the world. Now, the law could really be summarized with two commands, love and allegiance to Yahweh and love of neighbor. Now, I don't know if this is kind of how you think about the law, but oftentimes among Christians, there is kind of negative speak and negative perspective about the law. But we need to understand this was not the view of Israel. This was not the view of Jesus, and this was not the view of Jesus' earliest disciples. See, the law contained the story of Israel, and their covenant relationship with God. It contained the story of the true God, Yahweh, who had created all things, who had created the earth as his dwelling place to live with humans who he created in his image, and he loved. And it was the story of what had gone wrong with the world and how God had promised to do something about it, that God would rescue and redeem the whole world through the family of Abraham. Remember, there's this promise to Abraham, Abraham, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing to the rest of the world. See, the law contained this story. It contained this promise, not just for Israel, but for the whole world, that God would rescue and redeem the world and bring it back to what he had always intended for humanity and for the world. Now, if the law concerns the story of God's work to rescue and redeem the world, his covenant with Israel and the infusion of his character and goodness into their culture and way of life, the prophets are concerned with how the covenant between God and Israel was forsaken by Israel and what God would do to remedy that and rescue and redeem Israel, the nations, and make the world his good kingdom once again. Now, in Calvary Chapel culture, um, some of you know this, and if you're new to Calvary Chapel, then here you go, a little intro. We tend to think of the prophets as only seeing future events and predicting future events. And in history, Calvary is really into this. We really like our prophecy charts, and we like coming out for prophecy updates and all this kind of stuff, which, sure, the prophets have that, but primarily I want us to understand what the view of the prophets have historically been is that the prophets are the covenant gatekeepers of Israel. What do I mean by that? The prophets are constantly calling Israel to return to their primary calling and identity as the people of God, as a light to the nations and the vehicle to which God would bring blessing and rescue to the whole world. Right, So when we read the prophets, this is actually how we should see their primary role. This is their call. They're calling Israel back to the covenant and the story of God and his covenant with Abraham's family. And I think you could summarize all the prophets in this way. There's the call of the prophets, as I just mentioned, to return Israel to its unique identity and calling in the world as God's light and witness to the nations. But then there's the failure of the prophets, the people of Israel, by and large, not completely, will resist, will bear the consequences of their rejection of God and their choosing of idols. They will bear the consequences of their sin and they will go into exile to Assyria and to Babylon. And this is the failure of the prophets. If you ever read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has no converts though he preaches to Israel again and again and again about their identity, about their calling, about what God desires for them. The prophet Isaiah. Remember, in the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says to Israel, look, Israel, though your sins are like red scarlet, they can be white as snow. It's this invitation back to their identity, but the people of God, they reject that and they receive the judgment for it. And then finally, The prophets turn their gaze to a hope beyond all of this. And that is the hope of the prophets, which is God will redeem Israel and the whole earth as well and restore her through her future anointed king, the one we call Messiah or Christ. So the prophets then turn our gaze to hope in Messiah, the king, and to look and wait for Messiah, the King. So, church, listen, when we talk about or when the New Testament talks about the law and the prophets, it wants us to see the bigger arc story of Israel, and that it's not a complete story, but it's a story in tension. It's a story waiting for resolution, waiting to be fulfilled. Now, on steps to the scene, Jesus of Nazareth preaching this coming of the kingdom of God to the poor, to the meek, to the humble, to the hungry, to the thirsty. It's all coming into being. And so Jesus clarifies for us his relationship to this great story of Israel. We must remember that there were already rumors about Jesus having a low view and a disregard for the law of Moses because he was healing people on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day that was observed by Israel to have complete rest from their labors. It was pushback against that slave identity that they had in Egypt, but now they were the free people of God living under God's rule. And Jesus was healing on this day. He was making people whole on this day. How dare he? But not only that, he was teaching some very strange things about God's kingdom, about who it was for, who it belonged to. And he was not teaching what the religious leaders of his day were teaching, what was commonly called the tradition of the elders. So it does beg this question, where is all of this going? Is Jesus a renegade and false teacher, leading people away from covenant faithfulness? And Jesus is here to say quite the opposite. In fact, Jesus is not here to abolish or go around or set aside or even lessen the law and the prophets, but he is here to fill them up. See, Jesus has a very high view of Israel's scripture, of its covenant and story. And he says, in fact, All of it will be fulfilled. In fact, heaven and earth are more transient than God's kingdom characteristics and his promises that he has shared with his people. And this is the very reason Jesus is here on the scene to fulfill, to bring to completion Israel's story. Interesting to note that the word fulfill that Jesus uses here, it is actually a favorite word and theme in Matthew's gospel. He uses it some 15 times in reference to Jesus and his relationship to the scriptures. And another interesting kind of nerdy you know, point is this. The, the uh, root of the word can mean to raise, to erect, or to set in place. And it's the same verb that is used for resurrection. So I want us to see in our minds, like the story of Israel in some sense, you guys, it had been lost. Do you know that at the time of Jesus, the family of David, the king, who had the promises of you know, the rule of the house of David, the kingdom of David, this is the messianic house. You know, they lived in Nazareth and people knew it. But you remember that story in the book of John. It says, hey, come meet Jesus of Nazareth. We believe he's the Messiah. And what's the response? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So understand the people of Israel at that time, they knew where the royal family lived, but they were not looking to the royal family for deliverance. They had put together their zealots. They were gonna overthrow the Romans and they were gonna take back the kingdom for themselves. They had their own pathways and visions of how the kingdom of God would come into being, but they were not Looking at their story. And so Jesus is here to resurrect the story, the promises, the covenant made to Israel. And he is here to bring them to completion. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Scott McKnight. He writes, in Matthew's gospel, the word fulfill is used emphatically to refer to the salvation, historical, theological, and moral story of Israel coming to completion in Jesus. That's what Matthew's gospel is all about. And he's constantly doing this, oh, so that it might be fulfilled what the prophet spoke, so that it might be fulfilled, so that it might be fulfilled. And so we're supposed to see in Jesus that Israel's story is coming to completion, that all the promises of God in Jesus are, yes, certain. They are, amen. This is what Matthew is at pains to show in his gospel that Jesus is the fulfillment and longing of Israel's hope for Messiah and for the kingdom. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on Matthew, he says, a unique element of totality and fullness is implied in Jesus's words, I came to fulfill. Now, just imagine that you're there on that hillside in Galilee, And you're hearing this kind of sermon for the first time about who the kingdom belongs to, about what God's kingdom is actually like. And then Jesus makes this audacious statement, I am here to fulfill all the story, all the hopes and all the longings of Israel. You know what we call that, my generation? We call that a mic drop moment where everybody's like, jaw drops to the floor, like what just happened? That's the kind of reaction we should have to the claim that Jesus is making here. Because you see, Jesus isn't just claiming that the law and the prophets, they're true, they're right, they're going to come to pass. He's not just saying that he can perfectly obey the law of God, like, you know, some like acrobatic move that's like never been seen before, but that he himself is here as the longing the fulfillment, the one that all of them, the law and the prophets have been pointing to the whole time that the story of God and of Israel finds its completion, its fulfillment in him. They've been waiting for him. Now, as I was reading this passage, I was just struck by the power of this. And um, I loved like, Arthurian legend as a kid and, you know, all of this like mythological folklore. I love all that stuff. I am pretty nerdy at heart. Um, Just putting it out there for any other nerds. We can talk afterwards. Um, But I was thinking about, you know, the story of Arthur, right? And the sword and the stone. And if you know anything about that story, right, there is this sword that's stuck in the stone and whoever pulls that sword is the rightful king of the Britons and he is the one that will unite the nation and defend it against, you know, the, um, the Celts or I can't remember exactly right now who is attacking them. But it doesn't matter the pedigree, it doesn't matter the wisdom, it doesn't matter the might, only one is able to draw the sword Excalibur and unite the nations. There's only one anointed king, and it's Arthur. In in that sense, you guys, this is what Jesus is saying. Like the one, the one that all of this has been pointing to is here, and he pulls the sword from the stone, uniting the people of God and bringing to completion the story of God. Or maybe in a way more pulled back way to understand this would be Jesus is the coming attraction to which all the billboards of the law and the prophets have been pointing to. And now that he is here, Jesus takes center stage as the object of our attention and the fulfillment of all longing. Now, I made mention in the beginning of our teachings of the Beatitudes That what Jesus is teaching here is right in line with what Isaiah said the Messiah would do. We read in Isaiah 61 about the servant of the Lord. It says, for the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and the Lord has anointed me, that's Messiah, to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to tell those who are bound about you know the day of the lord to comfort all who mourn in zion to give them beauty for ashes and so on and so forth and we talked about how the beatitudes basically jesus is taking up that messianic promise and he's saying it's here the interesting thing is when we read in luke's gospel luke chapter 4 jesus reads isaiah 61 in the synagogue on the sabbath and he reads this And it says he finishes and he sits down and everyone's looking at him. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And you can imagine, again, the shock, the awe of what Jesus is saying about himself. Now, I believe that this is Matthew's version of that. He has laid out this vision of Isaiah 61. And then what does Jesus say? I am here to fulfill It is all happening in and through me. That now that He is here, the law and the prophets fade into the background as their hope and longing takes center stage in the person of Jesus. Church, as I was reading this this week, I was reminded of that scene in Revelation chapter five, verses 1 and 10. And we cannot miss the profundity of this moment for the original hearers. May it not be lost on us. It's like this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll?" But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And John writes, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Think in this moment, John is incarnating what the prophets and the law were longing for. The tension that Israel was sitting in. Weeping and weeping. Where are the promises of God? Where is God? What has gone wrong with the world? Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center. Hear that? The center of the throne. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal because you were slain and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests, to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Notice it, who is worthy? Who is worthy? And what happens then? Jesus stepped forward and he takes center stage and everything revolves around him. He alone is worthy. This is that moment for the people of God hearing the sermon for the first time. And this is that moment for us today. Jesus alone is worthy. He sits at the center of the universe, as the center of the story of God and of the world, and as the object of all human longing. That's who he is. If this is how Jesus relates to the law and the prophets, if this is how he sees himself, then how should disciples of Jesus relate to the law and the prophets? Jesus tells us, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of God. Heaven. I believe that Jesus is calling disciples to have this same high view, this same reverence for the scripture that He does. But what does that look like? Now, if any of you had this kind of lurking suspicion that, like, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm born again, I've had this experience with God, I'm walking with God, but I'm a little nervous about my, you know, shrimp and pork eating. And I do mix cotton and wool, so there's that. And I'm not really super comfortable with looking at this stuff and like, am I in the right spot? Anybody else do this? Yeah, and I, have, I actually have really good friends who like, so I keep the law of Moses. And, I'm, and I try to do the whole thing because that's what I should do. And there are many people who really struggle. What is our relationship to the law and to the prophets? Two things here, I'd like to say. Number one is we, as followers of Jesus, we make Jesus front and center. What I mean by that is, when we you know, come into faith and following Jesus, we don't go back to the law of Moses or even the Old Testament to get our code of ethics. And there are many believe that after becoming a follower of Jesus, we're sent back to the law to learn God's righteousness, to learn morality, to learn God's way of being. But if what Jesus is saying is true, all of that has been fulfilled, made complete in him. So we don't go back to the law. We go to Jesus and we follow him and we learn his way of life, his way of being. And let me just say this, to go back to the law and the prophets, would be to dishonor Jesus, but not just to dishonor Jesus, to ignore the voice of the law and the prophets. We think we have a high view of the law and the prophets, but we're actually covering our ears and we're not really hearing what they're saying. You know, maybe you've heard this analogy before, but it would be like going back to the welcome sign at Disneyland once you had already visited the park looking for the happiest place on earth. Standing before the sign, isn't it great? It's like, you were already in the park. What are you doing back here? Stay in the park and enjoy. Don't go back to the sign hoping that it's gonna do something for you. It was pointing you all the time to the object, the fulfillment. I love the way Scott McKnight laid this out in his commentary. He says, if Jesus is the fulfillment... And if in that fulfillment everything is established as true and realized, then morality changes. And the clearest way to put this is to say that Jesus thinks that following him means following the Torah. Those who follow him and his teaching of the Torah will be called great in the kingdom. Anyone who denies his teaching and teaches others not to follow him and through him, Torah, will be called least in the kingdom. Essentially, what I'm saying is this. Don't get confused about your relationship to the law and the prophets. Follow the one that they were pointing to all along. Follow Jesus. Jesus believes that following him equates to observing and teaching the law and the prophets. So, Okay, if Jesus is our standard of morality and righteousness and he gives us our code of ethics, then what is the purpose of reading and studying the law and the prophets or the Old Testament? And there are many pastors and teachers who say, there isn't, don't worry about it, ignore it, move on, stay in the New Testament. I actually don't think that that is our relationship to the Old Testament. And I would say this, read scripture particularly the Old Testament, in order that your own story might be caught up in the story of God and the story of the world, the true story to which all of our lives are a part. See, the stories contained in Scripture, they're like these microcosms of the great story of God's redemption of his people. And we call that greater story the meta-narrative of Scripture, that there is a great Storyline, story arc being played out by God, where the God of creation has you know, lost his relationship with creation and with humanity that he so dearly loved, and he is doing something about it. He's moving through time and history to bring it all back to him, to bring it to fruition. And this is what the story of the Old Testament is about. And so we read scripture to be caught up in this great story. To join the story of God through the life, death, and resurrection and eternal reign of Jesus Christ over the kingdom of God. Now, the reason for the scriptures is to know this God of creation and salvation through his son. And to know and understand history and humanity from God's point of view, but not as a spectator, not as disconnected information, but ultimately for our lives to be brought into, up into that greater story, to be shaped by the story of God. Think about how Paul talks about Israel's scripture. Here's one example that I'll give, Romans 15, 4. He says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that we, through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. So like we read these stories, whether it's Joseph or it's Miriam or it's Ruth or it's David or it's Esther, and these are stories of God's faithfulness to individuals in time and history, and the way that God is moving the story forward ultimately will culminate in Jesus Christ, who will overthrow the power of darkness and usher in the kingdom of God. And scripture is inviting us to read these stories, to consume them, so that the way that we see the world, the way that we engage in the world, is faithful with the way God's people have always seen the world and engaged with the world. We're caught up in the story. Now, Jesus adds to his Jesus-centered understanding and fulfillment of scripture a standard of righteousness for his disciples that should cause our jaws to, To drop. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This verse is probably the hardest verse in all of the Sermon on the Mount. This one and the one that says, Be perfect, just like your Father in heaven is perfect. It's like, gotcha, (laughs) nailed it. And this is one of those ones that causes us to interpret this in all sorts of funny ways, I think. I think one way we must understand what Jesus is saying is that the too often excuse found among Christians, sayings like this, Jesus was righteous, so we don't have to be. Or this cringy hymn that says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Which basically says, I basically live however I want. My life isn't changed at all. I'm just forgiven. So Jesus takes away my burden of sin and releases me to live out my merry life however I want. No, Jesus invites us into his tutelage, invites us to be disciples, to learn his way of being. Jesus is talking about God's kingdom people having a righteousness, actual righteousness. That's the way we live in this world with all of its evil and brokenness and injustices, a righteousness that surpasses the possibilities of what the most pious, religious, and dedicated humans can do or offer. More righteous than the rigorous keeping of Mosaic law observance. Again, this is high teaching. The bar is set very high with Jesus. See, righteousness for Jesus' disciple For his kingdom, people, is concerned with the whole person, as Jesus will go on to teach. It's concerned with the heart and the mind and the actions. And according to Matthew's gospel, righteousness is whole person behavior that aligns with God's nature, his will, and his coming kingdom. So the question is, how is that possible for anyone? And it is possible because it is a righteousness that comes in and through Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and prophets, and the power of the spirit of God that he gives to all who belong to him. Paul the apostle, he puts it like this in the book of Romans. Listen, he says, for what the law of Moses was powerless to do because it was weakened by human failure, human inability, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemns sin in the flesh. Look, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh. That's the realm of the rest of the world, but according to the spirit. That's the realm of the kingdom of God. He's saying because we now live as citizens in God's kingdom, that comes with a whole new power given in and through Jesus Christ to actually outdo what the law could do. It goes above and beyond the law. This is why Paul writes in his letters, the person that fulfills the law, the person who fulfills the law lives out this command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is everything. You aim after that, you will exceed, go far beyond what the law could ever do. But this isn't just Paul that's saying this. This isn't just Jesus' take on this. Both the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel spoke of this work that the Messiah would do how he would fulfill and accomplish this transformation of human beings. Listen to this from Jeremiah 31. We're probably familiar with this if we've been studying the Bible for some time. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after this time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Guys, that is whole person righteousness language. He goes on to say, I will be their God and they will be my people. That is king and kingdom language. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That's character, virtue language. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. There it is. The life of God, the righteousness of God being assimilated into the people of God, being actual and real and actually manifesting itself in the way we live with one another, the way we respond to evil and sin and brokenness. And this is what the rest of this this sermon is going to concern, how we do this as followers of Jesus. God also says through Ezekiel, this one's great too, so we can't miss it. I will take you out of the nations I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean bless you I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols I will give you a new heart I will put a excuse me I will put a new spirit in you I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. It's beautiful. See, all of this is coming into being under the reign of King Jesus. These great and precious promises of how God would rescue and redeem humans He'd bring them back into what he always intended for them, that they would be image bearers of him, that they would live out his righteousness from within, his goodness from within, his wholeness from wholeness. Last week, Richard put this beautifully when he explained the ways that we understand righteousness from Scripture. And he talked about how the Bible has at least three aspects of righteousness, which is legal, moral, and social. And so we understand this as Christians, that God gives to us in and through the work of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God. He puts in us something that's not there. We're not righteous. We're sinners. We're broken. We're not what we should be. And God changes our status He gives us his righteousness. But that righteousness manifests itself in moral righteousness. John the Apostle says, we purify ourselves just as he is pure. So that's our heart, our motivations, what we value, the way that we think about one another, relate to God and to this world. All of that changes. But it also is a lived out righteousness, a social righteousness that manifests in mercy, forgiveness, nonviolence, peacemaking, righteousness, justice, and shalom. So the righteousness of God is to be assimilated by the people of God, and it must be lived out. Listen to what Scott McKnight says, just in case we're, you know, Missing this, I love this. He says, Yes, righteousness emerges out of communion with Jesus and redemption. It's a kingdom righteousness, a kingdom that comes with new covenant power to heal and transform. Yes, this is righteousness under the cross, but whatever your understanding, you cannot get around the fact that it is a righteousness that is done, it is practiced and pursued. So, none of this, I'm not perfect, just forgiven, right? It's no. God has put his righteousness in me and I am following Jesus and practicing righteousness just as he is righteous. Jesus is the hero, the forerunner, right? And we follow in his wake, we imitate him and we see the righteousness and justice of God lived out in this world through his people. This is what this sermon is all about. Now, church, I believe, this is my deep conviction, that this Sermon on the Mount the righteousness, justice, flourishing, and human wholeness that it puts forward, it's possible. And it's possible because Jesus, our King, the one who fulfills all righteousness and brings to completion the law and the prophets, the great story of God in the world, has made it possible through his own life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and eternal reign over the kingdom of God. And he invites us anyone who will hear, to be a student, an apprentice, a disciple, to learn his way of being, to see that righteousness infuse every part of us so that what comes from within, from our heart, is truly right, good, true, and beautiful. That's the vision of this sermon. Now, my takeaways from this passage are two things. Number one, church, Let Jesus take center stage. And I don't just mean like in our worship, you know, we sing that song, Jesus be the center, or there's all these songs about center, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Not just when we gather, but that we see Jesus as the object of all of the hopes and longings of the whole world. That he's it. And that without Jesus, we're sunk, we're lost. If Jesus is who he said he is, then he must have center stage as the object of all of our desire and longing and practice that we just keep him before us as the object and way of human wholeness and flourishing. So we worship and adore him for all that he is and all that he has done. He is worthy of all attention, of all the praise and applause. He is worthy of our undivided attention and our allegiance. Secondly, let Jesus teach you and teach me his way. He alone has the words of eternal life. He alone says, if you follow my teaching, you will be like a wise person who built their house upon a rock and whatever comes against that house, the house will stand. That's what Jesus says. That's flourishing. That's wholeness. That's what he offers us. And I'm reminded again of the words of C.S. Lewis that he says, our faith is not a matter of hearing what Christ said so long ago and trying to carry it out, but rather the real son of God is at your side. See, as an apprentice of Jesus, as a disciple, he's with us. It's as if Jesus is taking each of us by the hand and he's saying, Walk with me, be with me, follow me, practice my way of being, become like me, and do what I do. Jesus wants to walk with us, church. He wants to be our friend, He wants to be at our side through every turn and twist of life, teaching us his way of being. This is what he is offering us in order that his own life, his righteousness might permeate every part of our being that we might live now under his kingly reign. You guys, you know, it's hard to teach this passage without just kind of saying all this. This is just, part of my deep, deep desire for this community. That we would be a Jesus-formed community. That he would be the center around everything we do. The object and attention, allegiance of each and every one of our lives. But also the reason, the cause and the power with which we love one another. And we live in community with one another. And that God's love and his life would pour out of this community into our neighborhoods, into our places of work so that other people might experience the life-giving power, the transforming power that is in Jesus Christ. Dallas Willard, he said this in The Divine Conspiracy, Jesus came among us to show and teach the life for which we were made. He came very gently and opened access to the governance, the kingdom of God with him and set afoot a conspiracy of freedom and truth among human beings. Having overcome death, he remains among us. And by by relying on his word and his presence, the Son of God is at your side, we are enabled to reintegrate the little realm that makes up our own life into the infinite rule of God. And that is the eternal kind of life. Caught up in his active rule, our deeds become an element in God's eternal history. We join the story of God and they are what God and we do together, making us part of his life and him a part of ours. This is the invitation of this sermon to bring Jesus to center stage and to follow him very closely for the rest of our days so that the life of Jesus may be put on display in and through our lives. Now, as we respond to the teaching of God's word this morning through worship and song, just praise and adoration, I wanna bring us back to that passage in Revelation 5. Who is worthy? to open the scroll and loose the seal. And I believe that in every single one of us, there is that longing to know the answer to that question. What deserves that place in the life of a human being, in the life of a community? Who deserves that honor, that focus, that attention, that kind of allegiance? And the resounding voice of the scripture says, only Jesus Only he is worthy. And so as we come to the table of the Lord this morning and we're reminded of Jesus' worthiness, that's an opportunity for us to ask, what is taking that place? Where is my attention? Where is my allegiance? Where is my affection? And to allow Jesus, once again, to take center stage of our life and to follow him.